Hello? Is this thing on? Are you on? I hope so. I gotta read. guys ready for a long one go ahead and get your tea now because you might need a refill according to my Kindle chapter 11 book 2 is 1 hour and 49 minutes yeah you heard that right 1 hour 49 minutes and I'm going to try to make it through the entire thing in one sitting. So you guys are lucky you get to pause. I have to keep talking for one hour and 49 minutes. So you better listen to the episode. Or I'm going to be really pissed. All right. Let's get on with it. I'm going to stop you guys right here for just a second. A little pause to let you know about my coming Patreon. I'm going to launch it uh, right after 1984, between 1984 and the next book, which I have chosen to be The Hunger Games. Um, I think there's four tiers from a dollar to ten dollars or something. Um, I'm still building them and moving things around. But everything from bonus content to uh, extra readings to readings from the next book that I choose or even that you choose, you might have a chance to vote on uh, what the next book may be. Um, I have some that I'll send you little packages of stuff. Everything is based on a quote from a band book. So you may not know what the quote is, but when you get your little box of things, it'll tell you. It'll tell you the book that it's from and, and what the quote is and why I chose that quote to go along with that thing. Because um, some of them are obscure. Uh, and then some of them you might recognize. So they are, they're going to be listed by title of the book, not by the quote. So that's a little secret. little secret insider thing is you got some pretty awesome stuff in each one of the tiers. And they're based on something that I'm doing in this podcast, which is reading banned books. So I'll let you know when the official date is, uh, probably a day or two after finishing um, up 1984. It'll probably be in the Hunger Games uh, spoiler trailer. So I would be happy if you guys would help me and uh, help me 
pay for books, basically. That's where that's where your money's gonna go. It's gonna help me pay for books. I have to use the Kindle app um, to read because of dyslexia. Um, Amazon had created this font or typeface for dyslexia, and that's why I can read more easily, especially aloud. Um, I know you guys know this this is a very big challenge for me to read to you guys so but these tears will help you look past some of the things that my phonetically reading and dyslexia causes so I let you know in the Hunger Games trailer the date of launch and also on Twitter at damned books underscore 451 and Instagram which is the same thing at damned books for underscore 451 uh, that's where you can see all of the episode covers and book quotes that I design which may or may not be included in one of your boxes. All right. Well, that's it. Let's go read some more. Quick recap. Winston and Julia, they met with O'Brien. They're either going to join the Brotherhood or be thrown into the Ministry of Love by the Thought Police. Maybe we'll find out in this hour and 49 minutes. Chapter 11, Book 2, 1984, by George Orwell. Winston was gelatinous with fatigue. Gelatinous was the right word. It had come into his head spontaneously. His body seemed to not only the weakness of jelly, but the transluency. He felt that if he had held his hand, he would be able to see light through it. All the blood and lymph had been drained out of him by an enormous debauch of work, leaving only a fragile structure of nerves, bones, and skin. All sensations seemed to be magnified. His overalls fretted his shoulders, the pavement tickled his feet and even the opening and closing of a hand was an effort that made his joints creak. He had worked more than 90 hours in the, in the five days, so as everyone else in the ministry. Now it was all over. He literally had nothing to do. No party work of any description until tomorrow morning. He could spend six hours in the hiding place and another nine in his own bed. Slowly, in the mild afternoon sunshine, he walked up a dingy street in the direction of Mr. Charrington's shop, keeping an eye open for the patrols. But irrationally convinced that this afternoon there was no danger of anyone interfering with him. Help 
a heavy briefcase that he was carrying bumped against the knees at each step, sending a tingling sensation up and down the skin of his leg. Inside it was the book, which he had now in his possession for six days, and had not yet opened, nor even looked at it. On the sixth day of hate week, after the processions, the speeches, the shouting, the singing, the banners, the posters, the films, the waxworks, the rolling of drums and squealing of trumpets, the tramp of marching feet, the grinding of caterpillars of tanks, the roar of mass planes, the booming of guns, after six days of this, when the great orgasm was quivering its climax, and the general hatred of Eurasia had boiled into such delirium that the crowd could have gotten their hands on two thousand Eurasian war criminals who were to be publicly hanged on the last day of the proceedings. They would unquestionably have been torn them to pieces. At just this moment it had been announced that Oceania was not, after all, at war with Eurasia. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Eurasia was an ally. There was, of course, no admission that any change had taken place. Merely it became known, with the extreme suddenness, and everywhere at once, that East Asia, and not Eurasia, was the enemy. Winston was taking part in a demonstration in which one of the central London squares, at the moment when it happened, it was night, and the white faces and the scarlet banners were luridly floodlit. The square was packed with several thousand people, including a block of about a thousand school ch children in the uniform of the spies. On a scarlet-draped platform, an orator of the inner party, a small, lean man with disproportionately long arms and a large, bold skull, skull over which a few lank locks straggled, was harrying the crowd. The little Rumpelstiltskin figure contorted with hatred. He gripped the neck of the microphone with one hand, while the other, enormous at the end of a bony arm, clawed the air menacingly above his head. His voice, made metallic by amplifiers, boomed forth an endless catalogue of atrocities, massacres, deportations, lootings, rapings, torture of criminals, bombing of civilians, lying propaganda, unjust aggressions, broken treaties. It was impossible to listen to him without being first convinced and then maddened. At every few moments the fury of the crowd boiled over, and the voice of the speaker was drowned by wild, beast-like roaring that rose uncontrollably from the thousands of throats. The most savage yells of all came from the schoolchildren. The speech had been proceeding for perhaps twenty minutes, when a messenger hurried into the platform and a scrap of paper was slipped into the speaker's hands. He unrolled and read, without pausing his speech, nothing altered in his voice or manner or the content 
of what he was saying. But suddenly the names were different. Without words said, a wave of understanding rippled through the crowd. Oceania was at war with East Asia. At the next moment there was a tremendous com commotion. The banners and posters in which the square was decorated were all wrong. Quite half of them had the wrong faces on them. It was sabotage. The agents of Goldstein had been at work. There was a riotous interlude while the posters were ripped from the walls. The banners torn to shreds, trampled underfoot. The spies performed prodigies of activity in clambering over the rooftops and cutting the streamers that fluttered from the chimneys. But within two or three minutes, it was all over. The orator, still gripping the neck of the microphone, his shoulders hunched forward, his free hand clawing at the air, had gone straight on with his speech. One minute more, and the fair wars of rage were bursting through the crowd. The hate continued exactly how it was before except the target had been changed. The one thing that impressed Winston in looking back was the speaker had switched from one line to another, actually in mid-sentence, not only without a pause, but without even breaking the syntax. But the moment he had the other things seemed to preoccupy him, it was during that moment of disorder, while the posters were being torn down, that a man whose face he did not see had tapped him on the shoulder and said, Excuse me, I think you've dropped your briefcase. He took the, he took the briefcase abstractly, without speaking. He knew it would be days before he had an opportunity to look at it. The instant that the demonstration was over, he went straight to the Ministry of Truth. Though the time was now nearly twenty-three hours, the entire staff of the Ministry had done likewise, the orders already issuing from the telescreen recalling them to their posts were hardly necessary. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania had already been at war with East Asia. A large part of the political literature of five years was now completely obsolete. Reports and records of all kinds, newspapers, books, pamphlets, films, soundtracks, photographs, all had to be rectified at lightning speed. Although no directive would issued, it was just known that the chiefs of the department intended that within one week no reference to the war with East Asia or the alliance with East Asia, should remain in existence anywhere. The work was overwhelming, all the more so because the processes that it involved could not be called by their true names. Everyone in the records department worked 18 hours in the 24 and two three-hour snatches of sleep. 
Mattresses were brought up from the cellars and pitched all over the corridors. Meals consisted of sandwiches and victory coffee, wheeled around on trolleys by attendants from the canteen. Each time that Winston broke off for one of his spells of sleep, he tried to leave his desk clear of work. And each time that he crawled back, sticky-eyed and aching, it was to find that another shower of paper cylinders had covered the desk like a snowdrift, half burying in the speakwright and overflowing onto the floor, so that the first job was always to stack them in a neat enough pile to give him room to work. What was the worst of all was that the work was by no means purely mechanical. Often it was enough merely to substitute one name for another, but any detailed record or report of events demanded care and imagination. Even geographical knowledge that one needed in transferring the war from one part of the world to another was considerable. By the third day, his eyes ached unbearably. With it and his spectacles needed wiping every few minutes. It was like struggling with some crushing physical task, something in which one had to have the right to refuse, and which one was nevertheless neurotically anxious to accomplish. In so far, he had time to remember it. He was not troubled by the fact that every word he spoke into the speakwright every stroke of his ink pencil was a deliberate lie. He was as anxious as anyone else in the department that the forgery should be perfect. On the morning of the sixth day, the dribble of cylinders slowed down. For as much as half an hour, nothing came out of the tube. Then one more cylinder, then nothing. Everywhere, at about the same time, the work was easing off. A deep, and as it were, secret sigh went through the department. A mighty deed, one could never be mentioned, had been achieved. It was now impossible for any human being to prove by documentary evidence that the war was with East Eurasia that had ever happened. At 1200, it was unexpectedly announced that all workers in the ministry were free until tomorrow morning. Winston, still carrying the briefcase containing the book, which had remained between his feet while he worked and under his body while he slept, went home, shaved himself, and almost fell asleep in his bath, though the water was barely more than tepid. With the sort of voluptuous creaking in his joints, he climbed the stair above Mr. Charrington's shop. He was tired, but not sleepy any longer. He opened the window, lit the dirty olive, olive stove, and put a pan of water for coffee. Julia would arrive presently. Meanwhile, there was the book. He sat down in the sluggish armchair and undid the straps of the briefcase. A black, heavy volume, amateurishly bound, with no name or title on the cover. The print was also slightly irregular. 
The pages were worn at the edges and fell apart easily, as though the book had been passed through many hands. The inscription on the title page ran, The Theory and Practice of Ogolerical Collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein. Winston began reading. Chapter 1. Ignorance is Strength. Throughout recorded time, and possibly since the end of the Neolithic age, there had been three kinds of people in the world, the high, the middle, and the low. They had been subdivided in many ways. They had been born countless different names, and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude towards one another, had varied from age to age. But the essential structure of society had never been altered. Even after enormous upheavals and seemingly unrecognized changes, the same pattern had always reasserted itself, just like a gyroscope, which will always return to equilibrium no matter how far it is pushed one way or another. The aims of these groups was entirely irreconcilable. Winston stopped reading chiefly in order to appreciate the fact that he was reading in comfort and safety. He was alone. No telescreen, no ear at the keyhole, no nervous impulse to grant glance over his shoulder or cover the page with his hand. The sweet summer air played against his cheek. From somewhere far away there floated the faint shouts of children. In the room itself there was no sound except the in insect voice of the clock. He settled deeper into the armchair, put his feet up on the fender. It was bliss. It was eternity. Suddenly, as someone as one sometimes does with a book of which one knows that one will ultimately read and reread every word, he opened it to a different place and found himself at the third chapter. He went on reading. Chapter 3. War is Peace The splitting up of the world into three great superstates was an event that could be, and indeed was foreseen, before the middle of the twentieth century. With the absorption of Europe by Russia and the British Empire by the United States, Two of the three existing powers, Eurasia and Oceania, were already effectively in being. The third, East Asia, only emerged as a distinct unit, another decade of confused fighting. The frontiers between the three superstates were, were in place arbitrary, and in others they fluctuate according to the fortunes of war. But in general, they follow geographical lines. Eurasia compromises the whole of the northern part of the European and Asiatic landmass. From Portugal to the Bering Strait, Oceania comprises the Americas, Atlantic Islands, including the British Isles, Australasia, and the southern portion of Africa. East Asia 
smaller than the others, with a less definite western frontier comprises of China and the countries south of it, the Japanese islands, the large but fluctuating portion of Manchuria, Mongolia, and Tibet. The other combination, or the other, these three superstates are permanently at war, and they have been so for the past twenty-five years. War, however, is no longer the desperate, annihilating struggle that had been in the early decades of the twentieth century. It is a warfare of limited aims between combatants who are unable to destroy one another, have no material cause for fighting, and are not divided by a, any genuine ideological difference. This is not to say that either the con conduct of war or the prevailing attitude towards it has become less bloodthirsty or more chivalrous. On the contrary, war hysteria is continuous and universal in all the countries, and such acts as raping, looting, the slaughter of children, the reduction of whole populations to slavery and reprials against prisoners which extend even to boiling and burying alive are looked upon as normal and when they are committed by one's own side and not by the enemy but in the physical sense of war involves a very small numbers of people mostly highly trained specialists, and causes comparably few casualties. The fighting, when there was any, takes place on the vague frontiers whose whereabouts the average man can only guess at. Or around the floating fortresses which guard the strategic spots on the sea lanes. In the centers of civilization, War means no more than a continuous shortage of consumption goods and the occasional crash of a rocket bomb which may cause a few scores of death. War has, in fact, changed its character. More exactly, the reason for war is waged has changed in order of importance. Motives which have already been present to some small extent in the great wars of the early 20th century have now become dominant and are consciously recognized and acted upon. To understand the nature of the present war, for in spite of the regrouping which occurs every few years, it's always the same war. One must realize, in the first place, that it is impossible for it to be decisive. None of the three superstates could definitely conquer the other, even with the other, other two in combination. They are too evenly matched, and their natural defenses are too formidable. Eurasia is protected by its vast land spaces, Oceania by the width of the Atlantic and the Pacific, East Asia by the industriousness of its inhabitants. Secondly, there is no longer, in a material sense, anything to fight about. With the establishment of self-contained economies in which production and consumption are geared to one another, the scramble for markets, which was the main cause of previous wars, has come to an end. 
while the consumption for raw materials is no longer a matter of life and death. In any case, each of the three superstates is so vast it can obtain almost all of the material that it needs within its own boundaries. Insofar as the war has a direct economic purpose, it is a war for labor power. Between the frontiers of the superstates and not permanently in possession of any of them, there lies a rough quadrangle, quadrilateral, with its corners at Tang Tanger, Brazzaville, Darwin, and Hong Kong, containing within it about the fifth of the popula population of the earth. It is for the possession of these thickly populated regions and of the northern ice cap that the three powers are constantly struggling. In practice, no one holds power ever in practice, no one in power ever controls the whole disputed area. Portions of it are constantly changing hands, and it is the chance of seizing this or that fragment by sudden stroke of treachery that dictates the endless changes of alignment. All of the disputed territories contain valuable minerals, and some of them yield important vegetables, such as rubber, which in colder climates is necessary to synthesize by comparatively expensive methods. But above all, they contain a bottomless reserve of cheap labor, which power controls equilateral Africa, or the countries in the Middle East, or South India, or the Indonesian archipelago, disposes also of bodies of scores or hundreds of millions of ill-paid and hard-working coolies. The inhabitants of these areas reduced, more or less, openly to the status of slaves, pass continually from conqueror to conqueror, and are expended like so much coal or oil in the race to turn out more ornaments, to capture more territory, to control more labor power, to control, to turn out more ornaments, to capture more territory, and, in, and so on and on indefinitely. It should be noted that the fighting never really moves beyond the edges of the disputed areas. The frontiers of Eurasia flow back and forth between the basin of the Congo and the northern shore of the Mediterranean, the islands of Indian Ocean and Pacific constantly being captured by Oceania and by East Asia. In Mongolia, the dividing line between Eurasia and East Asia is never stable. Around the pole, all three powers lay claim to an enormous territories in which, in fact, are largely uninhabited and unexplored. But the balance of power always remains roughly even. Even the territory which forms the heartland of each superstate always remains inviolate. Moreover, 
the labor of the exploited people around the equator. It's not really necessary to the world's economy. They add nothing to the wealth of the world, since whatever they produce is used for the purpose of war. And the object of waging a war is always to be in a better position in which to wage another war. By their labor, the slave populations allow the tempo of continuous warfare to be speeded up. But if they do not exist, the structure of world society and the process by which it maintains itself, it would not be essentially different. The primary aim of modern warfare, in accordance to the principles of doublethink, this aim is simultaneously recognized, not recognized, by the directing brains of the inner party. It is to use up the products of the machine without raising the general standards of living. Ever since the end of the 19th century, the problem of what to do with the surplus of consumption goods has been latent in industrial society. At present, when few human beings ever even have enough to eat, this problem is obviously not urgent, and it might not have become so even if no artificial processes of destruction had been at work. The world today is bare and hungry, dilapidated place compared to the world that existed before 1914, and still more so if it was compared to the imaginary future of which people of that period looked forward in the early 20th century. The vision of a future society unbelievably rich, leisured, orderly, and efficient, a glittering antiseptic world of glass and steel and snow-white concrete, was part of the consciousness of nearly every literate person. Science and technology were developing at a prestigious speed, and it seemed natural to assume that they would go on developing. This failed to happen, partly because of the impoverishment caused by long series of wars and revolutions, partly because scientific and technical process depend on the empirical habit of thought, which could not survive in a strictly regimented society. As a whole, the world is more primitive today than it was 50 years ago. Certain backward areas have advanced, various devices, always in some way connected with warfare or police espionage, have been developed. But experiment and invention have largely stopped, and the ravages of the atomic war of the 1950s have never been fully repaired. Nevertheless, the dangers inherent in the machine are still there. From the moment when the machine first made its appearance, it was clear to all thinking people that the need for human drudgery, and therefore to greater extent for human inequality, had disappeared. If the machine were used deliberately for that end, hunger, overwork, dirt, illiteracy, and disease could be eliminated within a few generations. And in fact, 
without being used for any such purpose, but by a sort of automatic process, by producing wealth in which it was sometimes impossible not to distribute. The machine did raise the living standards of the average human being very greatly over a period of about fifty years at the end of the nineteenth and the beginning of the twenty twentieth centuries but it was also clear that an all-round increase in wealth threatened the destruction indeed in some sense it was the destruction the hierarchical society In a world in which everyone worked short hours, had enough to eat, lived in a house with a bathroom and a refrigerator, and possessed a motor car or even an airplane, the most obvious and perhaps the most important form of inequality would already have disappeared. If it once became general, wealth could no longer confer, confer distinction. It was possible, no doubt, to imagine a society in which wealth, in the sense of personal possessions and luxuries, should be evenly distributed, while power remained in the hands of a small, privileged caste. But in practice, such society could not remain stable, for if leisure and security were enjoyed by all alike, great mass of human beings who were normally stupefied by poverty would become literate and would learn to think for themselves. And once they had done this, they would sooner or later realize that the privileged minority had no function, and they could sweep it away. In the long run, the hierarchical society was only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance. To return to the agricultural past, as some thinkers about the beginning of the twentieth century dreamed of doing, was not a practical solution. It conflicted with the tendency towards mechanization, which had almost become quasi-instinctive throughout almost the whole world, and moreover, any country of which remained industrial backwards was helpless in military sense and was bound to be dominated, directly or indirectly, by its more advanced rivals. Nor was it satisfactory solution to keep the masses in poverty by restricting the output of goods. This happened to a great extent along the final phases of capitalism, roughly between 1920 and 1940. The economy of many countries were allowed to stagnate. Land went out of cultivation. Capital equipment was no longer added. Great blocks of the population were prevented from working and kept half alive by state charity. But this too entailed military weakness, since the provisions that inflicted were obviously unnecessary. It was made opposition inevitable. The problem was how to keep the wheels of industry turning without increasing the 
real wealth of the world. Goods must be produced, but they must not be distributed. And in practice, the only way of achieving this was by continuous warfare. The essential act of war is destruction, not necessarily of human lives, but the product of human labor. War is a way of shattering to pieces, or pouring into the stratosphere, or sinking into the depths of the sea, materials which might otherwise be used to make the masses too comfortable, and hence, in the long run, too intelligent. Even when rep weapons of war were not actually destroyed, their manufacture was still a convenient way of expending labor power without producing anything that could be consumed. A floating fortress, for example, has been locked up. In, in it the labor that would build several cargo ships. Ultimately, it, was, it is scrapped to be obsolete, never having brought any material benefit to anybody. I'm going to read that sentence again. A floating fortress, for example, has been locked up in it the labor that would build several cargo ships. Ultimately, it is scrapped as obsolete, having never brought any material benefit to anybody. And with further enormous labors, another floating fortress is built. In principle, the war effort is always so planned as to eat up any surplus that it might exist after meeting the bare needs of the population. In practice, the needs of the population are always underestimated. With the result of that is a chronic shortage of half of the necessities of life. But this is looked on as an advantage. It is a deliberate policy to keep even the favored groups somewhere near the brink of hardship because the general state of scarcity increases the importance of the small privileges and thus magnifies the distinction between one group and another. By the standards of the earliest 20th, early 20th century, even a member of the inner party lives an austere, laborious kind of life. Nevertheless, the few luxuries that he does enjoy, his large, well-appointed flat, the better texture of his clothes, the better quality of his food, drink, and tobacco, his two or three servants, his motor car or helicopter, set him in a different world from member of the outer party. And the members of the outer party have similar advantages in comparison with the submerged masses masses whom which we crawl the proles a social atmosphere that is besieged city where the possession of a lump of horse flesh makes the difference between wealth and poverty and at the same time the consciousness of being at war and therefore in danger makes the handing over of all power to the small caste seem the natural unavoidable condition of survival. War, it will be seen, not only accomplishes the necessary destruction, but accomplishes it in a physiological, acceptable way. 
In principle, it would be quite simple to waste the surplus labor of the world by building temples and pyramids, by digging holes and filling them up again, or even producing vast quantities of goods and then setting fire to them. But this would only provide an eco this would provide only the economic, not the emotional basis for the hierarchical society. What is concerned here is not the moral of the masses, whose attitude is unimportant so long as they kept steadily at work. Even the humblest party member is expected to be competent, industrious, even, in, even intelligent within narrow limits. But it is also necessary that he should be a credulous and ignorant fanatic whose prevailing moods are fear, hatred, adulation, adulation, and orgastic triumph. Whew, that had some words in it. And a lot of uh, dashes. Sorry about that. In other words, it is necessary that he should have a mentality appropriate to a state of war. It does not matter whether the war is actually happening, since no decisive victory is possible. It does not matter whether the war is going, is going well or badly. All that is needed is that the state of war should exist. The splitting of intelligence which the party requires of its members and which is more easily achieved in an atmosphere of war is almost universal. But the higher up the ranks one goes, the more marked it becomes. It is precisely in the inner party that war hysteria and hatred of the enemy is strongest. In his capacity as administrator, it is often necessary for a member of the inner party to know that this or that item of war news is untruthful. And he may often be aware that the entire war is untruthful and is either not happening or is being waged for purposes quite other than the declared ones. But such knowledge is, is easily neutralized by the technique of doublethink. Meanwhile, no inner party member waves for an instant in his mystical belief that war is real, and that it is bound to end victoriously, with Oceana the undisputed master of the entire war. Alright, word of warning, y'all. After 45 minutes of reading, I have realized why this chapter is an hour and 49 minutes. It's an hour and 49 minutes because it contains the entire third chapter of the Brotherhood Handbook. It's titled War is Peace, and it goes into very great detail about why this is a party slogan. But, if it's important enough for Winston to find a hidden room somewhere to read it, it's important enough 
for you guys to listen to me botch up some of the words. So, continue listening. You'll get the idea. And as long as you continue listening, I'll continue reading. So, that's all I gotta say. Continue listening. Much love. Storyteller. All party members of the inner party believe that in this coming conquest, as an article of faith, it is to be achieved either by gradually acquiring more and more territory, or so building up an overwhelming preponderance of power, or by the discovery of something new, unanswerable weapon, the search for new weapons continues incessantly and is one of the very few remaining activities in which the inventive or speculative type of mind can find any outlet in. In Oceania at present day, science in the old sense has almost ceased to exist. In Newspeak there is no word for science. The empirical method of thought on which all scientific achievements of the past were founded is opposed to the most fundamental principles of INSOC. Even the technological progress only happens when its products can be used for some of the diminution of human liberty. In all the useful arts, the world is either standing still or going backwards. The fields are cultivated with horse plows while books are written by machinery. But in the matter of vital importance, meaning in the fact, war and police espionage, the empirical approach is still encouraged or at least tolerated. The two aims of the party are to conquer the whole surface of the earth and to extinguish once and for all the possibility of independent thought. There are, therefore, two great problems in which the party is concerned to solve. One is how to discover, against his will, what another human being is thinking. And the other is how to kill several hundred million people in a few seconds without giving a warning beforehand. So in so far as scientific research still continues, this is its subject matter. The scientist of today is either a mixture of psychologist or inquisitor, studying with extraordinary minuteness the meaning of facial expressions, gestures, and tones of voice, and testing the truth-producing effects of drugs, shock therapy, hypnosis, and physical torture. Or if he is a chemist, physicist, or biologist, concerned only with such branches of his special subject are as relevant as taking of life. In the vast laboratories of the Ministry of Peace, in the experimental stations hidden in the Brazilian forests, or in the Australian outback, or lost 
islands of the Antarctic. The teams of experts are in defeg indefatigable fuck that word at work some are concerned simply with planning the logistics of future wars others devise larger and larger rocket bombs more and more powerful explosives and more and more impenetrable armor plating others search for new deadlier gases or for soluble poisons capable of being produced in such quantities destroy the vegetation of whole continents or for breeds of disease germs immunized against all possible antibodies others strive to produce a vehicle that shall bore its way under the soil like a submarine under water or an airplane as independent of its base as a sailing ship. Others explore even remoter possibilities, such as focusing the sun's rays through a lens suspended thousands of kilometers away in space, or producing artificial earthquakes and tidal waves by tapping the heat at the Earth's center. But none of these projects ever come anywhere near realization and none of the three superstates ever gains a significant lead on the other. What is most remarkable is that all three powers already possess, in the atomic bomb, a weapon far more powerful than any of their present researches are likely to discover. Although the party, according to its habit, claims the invention for itself, Atomic bombs first appeared as early as the 1940s and were first used on a large scale about 10 years later. At that time, some hundreds of bombs were dropped on industrial centers, chiefly in European Russia, West, Western Europe, and North America. The effect was to convince the ruling groups that all countries that a few more atomic bombs would mean the end of organized society, and hence of their own power. Therefore, although no formal agreement was ever made or hinted at, no more bombs were dropped. All three powers merely continued to produce atomic bombs and store them up against the decisive opportunity in which they all believe will come sooner or later. And meanwhile, Meanwhile, the art of war has remained almost stationary for 30 or 40 years. Helicopters are used more than they were formerly. Bombing planes have been largely superseded by self-propelled projectiles, and the fragile, movable battleship has given away to the almost unsinkable floating fortress. But otherwise, there has been little development. The tank, the submarine, the torpedo, the machine gun, even the rifle and the hand grenade are still in use. And in spite of the endless slaughters reported in the press and on the telescreens, the desperate battles of earlier wars, in which hundreds of thousands or millions of men were often killed in a few weeks, have never been repeated. None of the three superstates ever attempts any maneuver which involves the risk of serious defeat. 
when any large operation is undertaken, it is usually a surprise attack against an ally. The strategy that all three powers are following, or pretend to themselves that they are following, is the same. The plan is, by a combination of fighting, bargaining, and well-timed strokes of treachery, they acquire a ring of bases completely encircling one another or the other of the rival states. Then they sign a pact of friendship, which the rival and remain on peaceful terms for so many years as to lull suspicion to sleep. During this time, rockets are loaded with atomic bombs that can be assembled at all the strategic spots. Finally, they will be fired simultaneously with the effects so devastating as to make retaliation impossible. It will then be time to sign a pack of friendship with the remaining world power in preparation for another attack. This scheme, it is hardly necessary to say, is merely a daydream, impossible of realization. Moreover, no fighting ever occurs except in the disputed areas around the equator and the pole. No invasion of, uh, no invasion of enemy territory is ever undertaken. This explains the fact that in some places the, f the frontiers between the superstates are arbitrary. Eurasia, for example, could easily conquer the British Isles, which are geographically part of Europe. Or go on the other hand, it would be possible for Oceania to open up its frontiers to the Rhine, or even to the Vistula. This would violate the principle, followed on all sides, through never formulated of cultural integrity. If Oceania were to conquer the states that used once to be known as France or Germany, it would be necessary to either exterminate the inhabitants and a task of great physical a task of great physical difficulty or to assimilate a population of about a hundred million people who so far as technical development goes are roughly on the level of Oceania. The problem here is the same for all three superstates. It is absolutely necessary to their structure that there should be no contact with foreigners except, to a limited extent, with war prisoners and colored slaves. Even the official ally at the moment is always regarded with the darkest suspicion. War prisoners apart, the average citizen of Oceania never sets eyes on a citizen of either Eurasia or East Asia, and he is forbidden to know the knowledge of foreign languages. If he were allowed to contact with foreigners, he would discover that they are creatures similar to himself, and most of what he has been told about them is lies. The sealed world in which he lives would be broken, and the Fear, hatred, and self-righteousness on which his morale depends might evaporate, and therefore realized on all sides that however often Persia or Egypt or Java or Ceylon may change hands, the main frontiers must never be crossed by anything except bombs. Under this lies the fact, never mentioned aloud, but tactily understood and acted upon, 
namely the conditions of life in all superstates are very much the same in oceania the prevailing philosophy is called ensoc in eurasia it is called neo-bolshevism and in east asia it is called by a chinese name usually translated as death worship but perhaps rendered as obliteration of self the citizen of Oceania is not allowed to know anything of the tenets of the two philosophies, but he is taught to excrete them as barbarous outrages upon morality and common sense. Actually, the three philosophies are barely distinguishable, and the social systems they support are not distinguishable at all. Everywhere there is the same pyramidal structure. The same worship of a semi-divine leader, the same economy existing by and for continuous warfare, it follows that the three superstates not only cannot conquer one another, but would not gain, but would gain no advantage by doing so. On the contrary, as long as they remain in conflict, they prop one another up like three sheaves of corn. And as usual, the ruling groups of all three powers are simultaneously aware and unaware of what they are doing. Their lives are dedicated to world conquest, but they also know that it is necessary that the war should continue everlastingly and without victory. Meanwhile, the fact there is no danger of conquest makes it possible the denial of reality which the special feature of Insoc and its rival systems of thought. Here it is necessary to repeat what has been said earlier, that, becoming, that by becoming continuous war has fundamentally changed its character. In past ages, a war, almost defiant by definition, was something that sooner or later came to an end, usually an unmistakable victory or defeat. In the past, also, war was one of the main instruments by which human societies were kept in touch with physical reality. All the rulers in all the ages have tried to impose a false view of the world upon their followers, but they could not afford to encourage any illusion that tended to impair military efficiency. As long as defeat meant the loss of independence or some other result generally held to be undesirable, the precautions against defeat have been serious. Physical facts should not be ignored. In philosophy or religion or ethics or politics, two and two might make five, but when one was designing a gun or an airplane, they had to make four. Inefficient nations were always conquered sooner or later, and the struggle for efficacy was amicable to illusions. Moreover, to be efficient, it was necessary to be able to learn from the past, which meant having a fairly accurate idea what happened in the past. Newspapers and history books were, of course, always colored and biased, but falsification of any kind that is practiced today 
would have been impossible. War was a safeguard of sanity, and so far as the ruling classes were concerned, it was probably the most important of all safeguards. While wars could be won or lost, no ruling class could be completely irresponsible. But when war becomes literally continuous, it ceases to be dangerous. When war is continuous, there is no such thing as military necessity. Technical process can cease, and the most palpable facts can be denied or disregarded. As we have seen, researches that could have been called scientific were still carried out for the purposes of war, but they are essentially a kind of daydreaming, and their failure to show results not important. Efficiency, even military efficiency, is no longer needed. Nothing is efficient in Oceania except the thought police. Since each of the three superstates is inconquerable, each is in, in fact, a separate universe within which almost any perversion of thought can be safely practiced. Reality only exerts its pressure through the needs of everyday life, the need to eat, to drink, to get shelter and clothing, to avoid swallowing poison or stepping on a top-story windows, and the like. Between life and death, between physical pleasure and physical pain, there is still a distinction, but that is all. Cut off from contact with the outer world and with the past, the citizen of Oceania is like a man in an interstellar space, which has no way of knowing which direction is up and which is down. The rulers of such state are absolute, as the pharaohs the Caesars could not be. They are obliged to prevent their followers from starving to death in numbers large enough to be inconvenient, and they are obliged to remain at the same low level of military technique as their rivals. But once that minimum is achieved, they can twist reality into whatever shape they choose. The war, therefore, if we judge it by the standards of previous wars, is merely an imposture. It is like the battles between certain ruminant animals, whose horns are set at such an angle that they are incapable of hurting one another. But although this is unreal, it is not meaningless. It eats up the surplus of consumable goods, and it helps preserve the the mental atmosphere that which a hierarchical hierarchy hierarchical hierarchical there we go that word has a dash in it hierarchical I had a hard time pronouncing that one because it had a fucking dash in it mental atmosphere hierarchical society needs war it be seen is now purely internal affair. In the past, the ruling groups of all countries, although they might recognize their common interest and therefore limit the destructiveness of war, did fight against one another, and the victor always plundered the vanquished. In our own day, 
they are not fighting against one another at all. Wars waged by each ruling group against its own subjects, and the object of the war is not to make or prevent conquest of territory, but to keep their structure of society intact. The very word, war, therefore has become misleading. It would probably be accurate to say that becoming continuous war has ceased to exist. The peculiar pressure that it exerts on human beings between the Neolithic age and the early 20th century has appeared and been replaced by something quite different. The effect would be much the same if the three superstates, instead of fighting one another, should agree to live in perpetual peace, each inviolate within its own boundaries. For in that case, each would still be safe-contained universe, freed forever from the sobering influence of external danger. A peace that was truly permanent would be the same as permanent war. This, although the vast majority of party members understand it only in a shallow sense, is the inner meaning of the party slogan. War is peace. Alright, I tried. I can't do this all in one sitting. I am losing my voice. So, we will continue this reading on Friday. And we should be near the end. And uh, I'll give a, a little preview into the next book, The Hunger Games. And get you closer to a launch date for my Patreon. So, there we have it. Uh, that's it for tonight. I will see you on Friday.